I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Lisa Murphy on Play, The Foundation of Children's Learning by Lisa Murphy. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we're continuing our discussion of our July and August book, Lisa Murphy on Play, The Foundation of Children's Learning. But before we get into today's episode, we're going to play a little game we've played before called Show Me You Know Me. We're going to each read off a question and some possible responses and try to guess the right response about one another. So Adrian, you're smiling. I feel like you have a good one. Go for it. What is it? Just a lot of these are really making me laugh. All right. When I button a shirt, I usually A, start at the top, B, start at the bottom, C, start somewhere in the middle, or D, you know, I haven't spotted a pattern yet. I'm glad that you went with this one because I feel like this is really, really crucial information for our listeners and for me to know. No, listen, this question is simply unhinged. I had to talk about it. Okay. You've got to start from the top, right? I start from the top, of course. I mean, not like the top button. The second button down and then you button down. Like, yeah. I haven't determined a pattern yet. Are you just, you're just not, I mean, I have to admit when I read the question, I took a beat I know. to like think about it. Picture. Yeah. And then when I mentally rehearse, yeah. start in the middle, excuse me, you start. In the- <laughs> what do you do? Start in the middle and go down, <laughs> like do the one below, then the one above, then two down, <laughs> then two up. <laughs> so yeah, it's not really enlightening, but it's just, it was giving me the giggles, you know? <laughs> All right. Now we know. Now we know. Okay. I'm going to do one. When I retire. My ideal type place to settle is A, city or urban life, B, the suburbs or a 55 plus community, C, the wilderness, or D, farmland. I'm thinking about what I know about what you've mentioned to me about your dream. I know you've talked about having a house, I guess in my mind, I would say the suburbs, but a little bit away from everyone with a little bit of land. I don't know if that would be described as like farmland. I don't think that's the goal, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's like the woods, like wilderness. So I guess I will say suburbs Okay, outside of a big city. So that is where I want to live my life. 
I want to move there soon. But when I'm old, let's say when I'm around 75 or 80, 70s, my dream is to move to a retirement community. Okay. My grandma lives in one. I want to cruise around. I want to, you know, like hang out, make a bunch of old people friends. (laughs) I didn't know that. (laughs) Stay really active. I just think those are the places where you have to stay engaged with people. You can't just like stay in your house and not go out and not be active. So no, I want to be an old active lady Mm. just doing my thing just like in the movies okay that is an enlightening answer for me I did not know that and also like I think the problem is I have never really thought of that for myself personally I don't spend a lot of time thinking like what am I going to do when I'm 70 oh well a lot of girls dream of like their wedding I dream of my (laughs) old years my retirement years well good for you you've got a plan and that's an advantage but you know I don't think it's a horrible idea and maybe I'll start saving some money for when I'm old so the burden will not fall on my child and I can have old friends too oh yeah okay wow have a show me you know me for you I think this is a hot topic at the moment Ooh. so can't wait artificial intelligence is a cutting edge technology and we should continue to push the boundaries. B, going to lead to our doom. Have you not seen the Terminator? C, something we should build upon, but only to an extent. Or D, something I really don't know much about. I'm going to go with C, something we should build upon, but only to an extent. B. (laughs) Oh, it'll lead to our doom. Self-destruction. For sure. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a little bit like cats out of the bag at this point. So It's going to take over. It's inevitable. Yeah, I don't know about takeover per se. It just feels like a dangerous game, Yeah, I think. Like, I see the benefits. I hear, I know chat GPT, this and that, but it's like, I don't know. Like, maybe it's good for us to think about those things ourselves, you know? Maybe we should keep, you know, the old noodle working. (laughs) I know. I know. I just heard someone spouting off about if you are writing your best man or maid of honor speech using chat GPT, just forget it. Like, you are garbage. What are we doing? But it is interesting. Sometimes my fiance will be, he'll get a text from somebody and he'll go, what should I say to that? And I'll go to chat GPT and ask him. And the responses are hilarious. They are hilarious. Really? <laughs> they're like so cheesy. Like they're accurate? They're helpful they, or no? Like they might be helpful for a total cheese ball, but they don't sound anything like what he would normally respond with. Yeah. I don't know. It gives me a little bit of a weird feeling, you know, but um, it's here regardless. Yeah. I don't know. Let's just... Yeah. Use chat GPT all the time, whatever. <laughs> Have a great time with it. Okay. All right. That's it for Show Me You Know Me. Stick around after a short break. We're going to be back to discuss chapters five through nine of Lisa Murphy on Play. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP book club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the slpbookclub. 
Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect for donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. This is our second episode covering Lisa Murphy on play, the foundation of children's learning. And today we're going to cover chapters five through nine. Once again, this is still kind of introducing her philosophy, her history before we really get into the, I don't know, the meat of the book. <laughs> so when we last left Lisa, she was really disappointed with what she was seeing and being asked to do in early education settings. And she was sort of disappointed even in who she had become for a little while when she was lured into becoming one of the laminated ladies. She was enthusiastic about starting her own preschool or childcare center. So she got a house with a really big yard. She creates a childcare center that she's proud of. This is a place where there's a lot of independent play, exploration, gardening, eating fresh fruit and vegetables that grow there, dancing, singing, building, and observing. It was very child-centered and play-based. And she began to document what she was observing in the children she worked with because she wanted to be able to support and defend what she was doing in the classroom. This is sort of like that binder she talked about in the introduction. She just wanted to be able to explain the intentions behind the choices she was making with her students. At this point, she started to rethink traditional lesson planning. So she started planning activities based on what she was observing in her students instead of just pulling out some random activities she found in books and making her students participate in them. So if you don't know what teachers do for lesson planning, the old way is to go through these activity books and find enough lessons to fill every day of the month. You put them in the lesson plan book. You make a calendar. You put things up on the walls. You send a calendar home to parents. You have your director approve them. And then you do that every single month. And she said it would take like a whole weekend out of your month. For some people, these might even come in the mail from a corporate office and you just follow them. So sad. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> but Lisa's new process was to use her observations of what the children were interested in to determine her next course of action. So she started to act as a facilitator for her students. She stressed that you cannot just abandon lesson planning because you're sick of doing it. You have to abandon lesson planning in exchange for preparing meaningful activities that are based on what you've observed that your students are interested in. Mm -hmm. The children really become the curriculum and guide the direction of your curriculum. So every day she would sit down and reflect on what they'd done that day. And she began to really see a pattern that all her reflections centered around seven words, create, move, sing, discuss, observe, read, and play. 
these seven things, which are called the seven things, <laughs> became the framework for her program. But it's not just a checklist that you have to get through each day, hurrying from one thing to the next. And she kept what she refers to as the bones of her program. So she always had dress up, blocks, writing, sensory tubs, all those things you see in a lot of preschool programs, yeah. even ones where the curriculum is dictated by the state or, you know, the preschool programs that I was a part of were on the creative curriculum and they had the imaginative play area. You know, they all had a water table outside. Yeah. They try. Yeah. Even though she was using what her children were interested in to guide her curriculum, she did sometimes turn to resource books to get ideas or extend something that they had shown interest in. And she used what are called provocations. So something that you intentionally add to a space to invite children to investigate further, like adding magnifying glasses by seashells. And then kids, you don't even have to tell them, hey, go use those magnifying glasses. You just wait and observe the kids and let them find them and realize that they can look at the seashells and see all the details, you know. So moving into chapter six, this is called Teach Us to Read. So eventually, even though she was not teaching her kids to read, some of her older students started asking to learn to read. And she kept going, no, go play. And they just kept coming back <laughs> and being like, teach us to read. <laughs> so she did some research and she found two similar methods that she liked and she gave them a try. She realized that if children were wanting to read, it must be because they were motivated by something specific that they wanted to read about. And I think in her head, she was having this battle. She was like, if kids came up to me and were interested in some subject, I would facilitate them learning more. And my kids are coming to me and saying, we want to read. Right. And I'm like, no, no, no. You know, she was she had this battle going on. So she was like, come on, give the kids what they want. Yes. So those kids that wanted to read, she had them tell her the words that they were interested in reading. She wrote them on three by five cards and she put them in word envelopes for each child. And then she made a reading table where those kids could spend time. And she started realizing that those words that they wanted to know were related to their daily experiences. And then she also taught them connector words so that kids could create real and nonsense sentences that they would read to one another. And she just kept seeing more and more that they were linked to the experiences that the kids had. Sometimes younger kids wanted to read and she would make reading envelopes for them, but then they would lose interest because they just weren't ready. She said kids need a lot of direct experiences first before reading can be meaningful for them. Yeah. And I don't know how you felt about this. She kind of made a big deal about how kids were attaching words to their experiences, but I'm not quite sure the reading part is what that is. Children do attach words to their experiences. That's how language develops. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but it seems to me that the desire to read would come from somewhere else. It's not just like that's how you're attaching the words and solidifying them. It would be more, it seems almost like more of a writing experience, like they want to share about their experiences. If they're making sentences and reading them to their friends, it's like they're writing. It's like they're sharing. Mm, right. Yeah. That's expression at that point, not really receptive. Yeah. You want to read because maybe you want to learn more about other things, right? About other people's experiences. Yeah, it's complicated. Like my daughter, you know, she's going to start kindergarten in two months and she's been expressing excitement about reading 
But I think for her, it's more of an independence thing. Yeah. I read so many books to her that I think she's like, I want to do it myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I liked her idea of the word envelope. Like, I think I'm going to try to just implement that over the summer. It feels like not too pushy, not too aggressive, but kind of fun. And it is focused on their interests, which I like. It's so cute. Yeah. I mean, you could have the words and she could put a little sticker on. Right. You could make it really cute. (laughs) And yes, that is special if she's learning words that are really meaningful to her. Right. So then what happened was that group of readers moved to kindergarten and Lisa starts getting calls from these kindergarten teachers. And they're like, what are you doing at that preschool? These kids are so advanced. (laughs) Basically, they were doing great in kindergarten. And Lisa was like, we were playing. And then she hung up on them. I love that. <laughs> yeah. They're like, no, but what were you doing? And she's like, playing. But what were you really doing? Playing. Bye. Like, I got to go play with my kids. <laughs> so that's when it really solidified things for her. Play is the foundation for later learning. You build that foundation of play. You give kids a lot of experiences. And then you're going to develop this lifelong love of learning. So she wanted to know more about why her framework was working. So she signed up for the National Association for the Education of Young Children's annual conference in 1996 in Dallas. And it changed her life. Moving into Chapter 7 strengthening the foundation. So Lisa goes to this conference in Dallas and she's really excited about this one big presentation on sensory bins, right? Yeah. There was a line out the door. Everyone was clamoring for some worksheets that they were going to get. Handouts. (laughs) Handouts. Handouts. (laughs) I was like, wow, people go crazy over a handout? Those were simpler times. (laughs) You got to think the internet wasn't big then. Right. Yeah. It was like emerging. You couldn't just like go on and grab the handout. This information was not easily come. (laughs) Yeah. So the presenter, you know, Lisa makes her way in. She gets a seat in the front row. I loved that, by the way. She was like, I'm not going to stand in line. I'm just going to sneak my way in. (laughs) She just pretended she knew someone at the front and was just going like, excuse me. Oh, I'm up there. So the presenter never shows up. And everyone's waiting, getting restless. So Lisa just gets up on stage. Wait a minute. You have to actually tell the story. (laughs) Okay. This chapter was like so my favorite. Somebody goes, we're waiting for the presenter. Just give us a couple minutes. And then she turns to the neighbor next to her and she's like, you know, are, are you excited to get 150 different ideas for your sensory bins? And the lady's like, yeah, well, I want this information. And Lisa's like, well, I already do all this with my kids. And the lady says, well, why don't you get up there and talk about it then? And she goes, I will. <laughs> I know. And then she just marches up there, grabs the mic. I know. I mean, I just can't imagine what personality type you have to have to be able to do this type of thing. No, I could never. I guess if you feel really passionate about it, maybe you just you just get up and go. Listen, I literally burst into tears reading this part of the film. What? <laughs> Is she emotionally unstable? Yes and yes. Check and check. <laughs> it was like so moving to me. Like that's brave. Like she said, I saw the opportunity, I grabbed it and I ran. And I just thought like, Lisa, it changed your life. Yeah. You were so brave and you did it. And just spoke about what you knew and you were passionate about. And I like admire that so much. Like it, it moved me deeply. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, I loved it. I was blown away by it. I admire her bravery. Yeah. It really got me amped up. <laughs> Obviously this whole book, we love this book because her passion for this stuff really shines through. That's her goal is to get more kids playing. She's like, If I can get more kids playing, what kind of world could we create, you know? 
I mean, the woman got a standing ovation after her impromptu presentation. I know. I know. Everyone loved it. She just gets up. She starts talking about what she does in her sensory bins. Everyone's exchanging ideas. Other people are saying what they're doing. People are like furiously taking notes, right? And then she's being whispered about the rest of the conference. She keeps seeing people like, that's her. That's the one that got up. <laughs> that's the sensory bin queen. <laughs> so she decided that if she got that much interest from people when she was completely unprepared, then she felt like if she really dove in and did her research and put things together, she could start teaching people about her framework and her program. So she started presenting at weekend conferences on early education. She ended up closing her childcare center and relocating to a little cottage and just working with kids when she would sub at other preschools and really, you know, giving a lot of workshops and presentations. But then she decided she wanted to reopen her program. So she got a bigger place and she enrolled babies, toddlers, and preschoolers, and she made sure that she was really building a program that embodied exactly what she was teaching to other educators at the conferences and workshops. And she saw that making the time to do the seven things every day was such a strong foundation and that the kids in her program really developed a lifelong love of learning. And that's when she became even more passionate as if she could, I mean, I thought she was all passioned out. Like I thought she'd reached the <laughs> top. <laughs> she really becomes even more passionate about spreading this program to others. Yeah. So chapter seven, I mean, say. read it. Like, look at Adrian's reaction. <laughs> Something happened to me. <laughs> so chapter eight is called, when does the playing stop? And, you know, Lisa tells the story in this chapter of how she was once asked by a woman, stands up in the back of her workshop and says, but when, oh, when <laughs> does the playing stop? <laughs> There's this fear amongst people that if you play too much, kids will get used to play yeah. and they'll go, no, I don't want to work. When it comes time to work, they can't put the play down. They won't stop playing. Right. But that's just not the case. And when that woman asked, Lisa said, Hopefully never, because, right, maybe that's why we're speech therapists. We love to play. I mean, I love to play. You should see me when I get a new Melissa and Doug set in the mail. The joy on my face as I open it and discover each little piece, I'm just like, oh, look at this tomato. <laughs> you know what? I think the lesson of this chapter, really what we've read so far, is do not come for Lisa when it's about play. Don't do it. She'll hang up on you. Oh, she'll have a sassy oh retort. Gosh. You don't oh want it. <laughs> you don't want none of this. She will put you in your place. <laughs> so let's get into what you do need to focus on if you're attempting this framework. Preschool programs all need to address DAP, developmentally appropriate practice. And if you've worked as a preschool SLP, you know these four domains of DAP. They are cognitive development, language and literacy development, motor development, both gross and fine motor, and then social emotional development. And if you attend a lot of preschool transition IEPs, you hear the preschool teacher address mm. all of these. You might contribute to the language and literacy development and the social emotional development portions. But many programs become lopsided because there's too much focus on the cognitive development and the language and literacy development. You know, that push to get kids ready to learn. Yeah. So you need more focus on the motor and social emotional development to bring things back into balance. But there are people who worry when programs focus too much on play, the children are missing out on something more important. They think a quality education is accumulation of random facts and test scores. But if you have not 
instilled in children a love of learning, then their education cannot be quality at all. Because I don't know, I just sometimes with my students, I was like, where are my kids who love to read? Like, I know that I was probably the same as you, Adrian. I remember in third grade reading Harriet the Spy. Oh, yeah. For fun. Oh, yeah. You know, like, this was not a, an assigned reading. I, like, would go to the library, pick out books. It was so exciting. The yes. smell of them. No, my mom would have <laughs> just... to drag me out of the library. Like, I could have stayed for hours. Yeah. It was... The kids I work with, yeah. even my gen ed kids, you know, who are just working on a sound or something. No one, I never encountered, actually, no, 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 that's not true. A couple. There were a couple who would carry a book with them. You know, you'd see the kids that would carry a book and yes. want to tell you about it. But small percentage. I do not see kids who love to read, yeah. who seek it out, who do it on their free time, just sit with a book because, and maybe it's technology, but where is it? I mean, sometimes my mom, my mom would pay us to read books over the summer like however many pages we got dollar amounts that's the only time she incentivized <laughs> something she just right. wanted us reading like keeping up our reading and I think yeah some of my other siblings I was like robbing my mom because I would just read thousands and thousands <laughs> of pages over the summer You're like challenge accepted so much <laughs> I was yeah. like can I read Little Women again like how many right. times can I read it this summer so was it the play was it the play and the exploration? Because then Lisa goes into the difference between the way we used to grow up, latchkey kids probably is yeah. what a lot of us refer to. You know, where you learned from your neighborhood, you played with your neighbors and right. you ran around together. And, you know, I made a lot of mud pies, built forts, did a lot of pretend play. We fought, yeah. you know, we worked it out. We dealt with things amongst all these kids. And now there's so much fear and neighborhoods aren't the way that they used to be. So even if you're thinking about when your grandma went to school, well, they just sat and it was very regimented and they didn't play in school. But she's saying, well, they had six years before that mm. to play in their neighborhoods and run around and build those skills, build that foundation. The interpersonal skills. I don't know how you feel about it, Adrian. No, I mean, I... I have a lot of great memories of also playing in my neighborhood with the neighborhood kids and riding bikes and like being definitely out of eyesight of my mom and dad and just making up stories in the middle of our cul-de-sac and having the best time. Oh, but yeah. it's true. It's like everyone wants to keep their kids inside. Plus technology, I think, is really hampering things. And plus overscheduling, like kids don't even have time to be out roaming their neighborhoods because they're at soccer and then dance and then art class and then tutors, right? Yeah. It's sad. And now there's all that competition from the time they're born, you know, comparing kids to other kids and showing off what your kid can do. So Lisa's point is, if our kids nowadays cannot get that experience of play that's just built into their lives, into their neighborhood, that they're just running around and playing, then we have to create it for them in the environments where they are. So if that means that at their daycare or at their preschool, we do these things, we create this environment for them, then that's how we can get back to it. And then our last chapter for this episode is chapter nine, meaningful experiences. So she goes through the meaningful play-based experiences that a child has as a precursor to learning to read, write, or do math. So she's like, before you can add and subtract, you should be counting roly-polies in the grass. And before you can write, you should be squishing Play-Doh, you know, and scribbling shapes and developing those fine motor skills. Mm -hmm. You know, there's really, she puts an emphasis on not stretching. You have to, it's kind of like uh, Tara Sumter, meet kids where they're at. You can't, you wouldn't, 
force a little baby to start walking before they're ready, before they're standing up and moving along the coffee right. table. You know, you don't you don't try to force it. But with for some reason with reading and writing and uh, numbers, it's like kids are not ready for these things. They have to have right. the foundation before you can start teaching them that stuff. Right. So we have to find balance between people who just jump from fun activity to fun activity and the laminated ladies who are so rule oriented and regimented. So if you just like present the fun activities, but you don't really have the why behind it, you don't have a goal, you're not connecting with what the kids are learning. That's not good either. You have to find your in between. So link playful learning to DAP, those developmentally appropriate practices. It helps you to see when children are playing that they're learning important concepts and it helps you link those concepts to the experiences children are having. She gives an example that I loved of gravity. If you're teaching the concept of gravity, you bring it up when kids jump off rocks, when you're playing with flubber and it oozes out of a container and down to the ground. You bring up gravity when balls bounce up and down. And then the kids might not get it right away, but they keep hearing this word gravity and the experiences are relevant to the child. And then they link the concept to the experience. And then the memory will trigger understanding when they hear that word or concept brought up in the future. Definitely. So experiences are the starting point and they need to be real and relevant to the child. And then out of experiences come words, language, and understanding. I love that example. Me too. And then I had this like mind blown moment <laughs> when she said, children do not have the ability to think abstractly until they are 12 years old. So when you expect children to be interested in things that they cannot see, touch, taste, hear, or smell here and now, you're asking them to do something that is developmentally inappropriate. Fascinating. So she gives the example of snow. She's really, I think she's from San Diego. So oh. she's like, why are we teaching kids about snow? Fake snow is not snow. If it doesn't snow where you live, why do kids need to know about snow? They'll learn about snow when they can go to the snow and experience snow because if you're making pretend snow but yes. I've made pretend snow and it is fun and I always ask my kids about when they've been to the snow and a lot of them have but being in LA yeah it's it's a little bit irrelevant to be teaching about snow I've thought about it <laughs> winter matchup activities on a boom cart or something and it's like or a snowman and a lot of these kids have never even built a snowman yeah you need to strengthen your ability to link conceptual language to the playful experiences you provide children with every day. She gives the example of when you're learning about apples and she goes through all these concepts she can link to different activities. So for example, I'm not going to go through all of them, but when you're cutting apples, you could be working on dividing, math, estimating, fine motor skills, confidence, risk taking. I was like, how sharp are these? Are they just giving the kids the knives? <laughs> Life skills. But you know, a lot of teachers have that apple cutter that just like slices down. Oh, yes. When you cut yeah. apples in half and make apple prints, you're using creativity and science and color mixing and fine motor skills and art. And she goes through all these examples. If you're counting the seeds, cutting it the weird way to see the star in the middle of the, the seeds or charting who likes green, right. yellow, red. And then she lists all the language you would hear in a preschool classroom when apples are brought in to really experience things like sour, juicy, smooth, bruised, bumpy, shiny, crunchy. And she gives a comparison of a room where children are learning about apples by looking at pictures of them, playing with fake apples, 
coloring apples on a worksheet. And it's a pretty sad description. And unfortunately, it is what we see in a lot of schools when they're doing their apples unit. Yeah, it's true. But real experiences unlock the secrets of the world for children. And we have to make time each day for children to engage in the seven things. So that takes us up to part two, where we are going to learn the seven things. In the next episode, we're going to be covering chapter 10, which is make time each day to create. So I can't wait to hear all of her ideas. Me too. I'm feeling very personally inspired with my own four-year-old. So thank you, Lisa. What a beautiful book. This is really exciting. I know. I love it so much. So we'll see you next time when we cover chapter 10. We hope you're loving this as much as we are. If you are, connect with us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club. We'd love to hear from you and we'll see you next time. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. At the SLP book club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.